You can take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book, 1 Corinthians, in the 6th chapter, first verse is where I'm going to be reading from in just a minute. Just to remind you, or if you're uh, kind of new with us this morning, kind of, we've been working through a sermon series uh, entitled, The Struggles of the Church. We've been looking at different passages of scripture where the writers were addressing struggles that the first century church was having. And what we've been seeing is that many, if not all, and very similar or almost exact same struggles still exist in the 21st century church. So we, 20 centuries later, we're pretty much in the same struggle. Today we're going to be, uh, I need to make a, a bit of an apology. Um, last week I failed to give you the ism name. Um, some people, I, I started this just kind of as a, as a remembery tool as, so that as we talked about different struggles we had, we had a way of identifying them. And I, I was asked the question, what was the ism this past week? And I had shifted away from it, but the fact that somebody asked for it last week would have been alterationism, which is a word I make up regularly. Um, but it was really talking about the struggle we have to maintain the message, the gospel of Christ as we received it. That the struggle is that, that the, who Jesus is, the gospel of Jesus, has been altered at different times. And we make alterations to it. And the Bible warns against us not doing that. And, we, and that's a struggle we face. And we, we kind of encapsulate it in sometimes our methods need to change. But our message always needs to be a pure gospel presentation. Well, today we're going to be talking about the oldest, the biggest Probably the first issue that the church had. It may be the most important struggle the church had. Um, and, and I am absolutely sure, 100%, there's a few times in my life I can say 100%, but that this issue still exists. As you know, as we've been reading through Acts, this is the birth of the church. The church kind of starts, talk, Jesus is talking about in the gospel that he's going to form a church. Um, and then Acts is really kind of the birth of the church. The church comes into existence, and it's pretty good. And then people start to come, and struggles ensue. And so today we're going to be talking about peopleism, the, the struggles that people have with one another. Uh, and the question that we're going to try to answer is this. How does a gospel-shaped community handle grievances between believers? How does a, a community that, that's shaped by the good news of who Jesus is, how do they handle it when people have issues with people? How does a grace affect interpersonal conflicts? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at, at all with one another is already a defeat for you, why not rather suffer wrong? 
Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? So we see this issue that, that these people, believers in the church, are having some, some squabbles between other believers in the church. Uh, it, it seems to probably be some kind of business dealing or some kind of financial dealing or some kind of dealing with one another. And they feel like, hey, I got a case here <coughs> and I've been wronged and I need to get this fixed. And they're ready to sue one another over this. They're going to take it to the court. And so I want us to just kind of see what is this supposed to be like in the life that we're living together when people have issues with other people. Well, let's learn. A lot of times I say, let's walk through the scriptures today. I, I change the phrase just a little bit. Let's learn from the scripture. Just kind of get the, the, the gist of the teaching, I think, that's here. Number one thing I think we can learn from this passage is that interpersonal issues are part of human existence, even in the church. That, that part of being a people is it's sometimes hard to get along with other people. And sometimes we don't see things eye to eye. And sometimes we, in, in, we come into some kind of conflict with other people. This is part of being people. <laughs> That's why we call it peopleism, right? This is just a natural expression. And just because we're in the church, we're not immune to, to struggling with other people. We're not immune to having differences with other people. We're not, we're not safeguarded against, against those kind of issues, against people issues. And so what I'd like to say, and I think this is both interpersonal issues, I, I'll use that phrase a lot, because I think what's going on in there is more than just legal matters, that, that they would go to people to settle all kinds of disputes in the, in the first century, that they would go kind of to the town hall, which was at the city gates, and they would whatever, whether it was a land issue, a marriage issue, uh, whatever kind of issue they might be having another one, that it would be a much broader issue than just what we handle in our courts today. And so I kind of frame it like that. So it could be interpersonal, it could be business dealings, it could be all kind of issues with other people. And so we're going to look at that in a broad spectrum today. And the first thing I'd like to say is struggles are okay, or natural at least. <laughs> That's part of being human, that we have struggles. We grow up, we see things, we have our opinions, we have our way of seeing things, we have our backgrounds, we have our belief systems, we have lots of us in us. And it doesn't match up with everybody else's us that's in them. And so sometimes conflict is inevitable if you're a human. Um, and so having struggles is not such a big deal. And actually I would suggest this, that it's in these struggles, these interpersonal struggles, that much of our spiritual growth takes place. This is actually the crucible where much of who we are and what's trying to be changed into the form of Christ and the image of Christ, it's in those, those struggles that much of that growth that we want as disciples, actually that's where it happens at. Um, so struggling I think is okay. What's really important though or what's most important is how we deal with it, how we, how, how we use it to grow and how we handle ourselves when we have interpersonal relationships. I actually believe this. I have for a long time, I've shared this I think on a number of occasions, that I actually believe that the church, what we call the church, this organization, this group, this congregation that we belong to, is very much the training ground where we learn how to deal with people so that we can go out and deal with people outside the church. Now, this is kind of where we practice loving one another, denying ourselves, putting other people first, being kind, being generous, being caring, being sympathetic, being empathetic. This is our practice field. 
And then we're supposed to take that and go out into a world and be the same thing to them, to be Jesus. And so this is, I think sometimes maybe God even calls conflicting kind of personalities, conflicting kind of ideas, conflicting kind of uh, philosophies into the same place so that we are faced with this struggle. So we learn how to do the very things that Jesus teaches us to do so that we can go out into a world and practice that on game day, so to speak. So anyway, interpersonal, one thing we know, the church, first century, they're having interpersonal issues. That's a natural thing. Number two, we learn that the church should help. There's an anticipation from Paul to the Corinthians. Can't you help? Look, verses four. So if you have, the, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who are, have no standing in the church? I say this to you saying, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between brothers? And so his expectation is that the church is here to help each other when we have struggles with one another. That probably is a, a main function of the elders of the church to be those kind of people who can come along and bring some wisdom to the, to the situation to help people who are, who are at odds with each other. We have to remember we follow, serve, admire, and worship the great mediator. The Bible says there's one mediator, one peacemaker between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's our Lord. If he's a peacemaker and a mediator and an arbitrator between God and man, we're supposed to in some way mimic that between men and men or between people and people. That this whole idea is that we're following the great mediator. We're following the great peacemaker and that we should, if we follow him, have some idea how to make peace between people. It's kind of our role and we practice that. And so that's the second thing we learn from this passage is that the church is expected by Paul to get involved when issues between believers. That they're expected to stick their nose in there a little bit and try to help bring peace for the church and for, these, for the disciples, really, for the believers. And this is the other thing we learn. Because it matters. <laughs> it matters because the world watches. And he's like, why are you doing this? Why are you going to non-believers? Why are you kind of shaming the church? Why are you showing the world that this group of people whose love is their number one mantra can't love one another? And so how we treat each other and how we deal with our interpersonal relationships and our interpersonal conflicts matters greatly because the world is watching us. And so let's talk about a couple of things we pick up from this scriptures, some mindsets to deal with issues with each other. Three, three mindsets, actually it's gonna be four. Um, I have to tell you, I added one this morning as I was kind of going over it. But so some mindsets for disciples, okay? So this is for believers, those who follow Jesus, to deal with issues with each other. One, and this is really the first one, Interpersonal issues should be dealt with. The first thing we got to decide is that they need to be dealt with. Human tendency is to avoid interpersonal issues, to, to navigate around them, to ignore them, to, to put on the happy face, to, to come to church and be Christian with one another and smile and wink and shake hands and act like everything's hunky-dory when in our hearts... 
we harbor things against one another. It's interesting, uh, I've often dealt with people and, and they talk about, uh, I've been doing some studies, and there's a passage in the scriptures. And, and Jesus a number of times talks about what goes on in your heart. And if something goes on in your heart, you're, you're guilty of it, whether you actually did it or not. In one of those places, if you have hatred in your heart, you're guilty of murder. <laughs> you know? And so we, we can act Christian a lot of times, but the first mindset we got to say is, look, that's not Christian. That dealing with this, being able to go to people and talk with them and come to peace and come to terms and, and, and give God what he wants, this, this, this unity among us, is the first thing you've got to decide to do because that's a decision because you're never going to feel like it. It's much easier, especially in a day when there's a church on every corner, it's just much easier to go to another one and find another place to go, right? But, but dealing with it is much more painful and hard. So here's some mindsets. These are the real mindsets. Once you decide to deal with it, well, well what do you, how do you come at this? Well, the first mindset you have is what I call a, a positional or an eternal mindset. Look in verse 2. It says, do you not know that you're saints? Do you not know that you're saints and you will judge the world? And, and if you're to judge the world, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? What I mean by position is we have to understand that what God made us when he saved us. He made us saints. We used to be sinners, and then he gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we become saints. Now, I know, and you know, that I probably shouldn't be identified as a saint, or at least we don't like taking on that name very often, but that's what we are. Over and over and over and over and over in Scripture, believers are referred to as saints. And so the question is, how would you expect a saint to handle an interpersonal conflict with someone. And you got to realize what your position is. This is what I am in the world. There's a story. I love it. One of the first councils held by the church in the 300s sometime, the, the Council of Nicaea. And they're, they're, deba they're debating the Trinity and the essence of the Trinity. And there's 300 bishops called together to have this discussion about the Trinity. And, and, and it's kind of settle what the church is, is going on. And, and it's, a, it's a lengthy debate. And there's a particular guy that, that's that believes and holds that Jesus isn't equal to God. And he's arguing this very vehemently that Jesus is less than God and that he's, that he's not equal and he's not part of the Trinity. And a fellow named St. Nicholas gets so upset that he walks across the room and slaps the man on the face. Yeah. Caesar, who, who Constantine, who had called this council... This was against the law, and St. Nicholas had to be thrown into jail because this isn't the way saints behave, and it was against the law, actually, and then ends up being St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, by the way. I think you got to be a pretty bad guy to get Santa Claus to punch you in the face, but, but anyway, he gets restored to his position. They settled the issue, but the idea is they were shocked. The, the place was like... That's not the way saints handle themselves, but that's what we are. And we too readily accept us acting like sinners when we've been transformed into saints. And so we have to understand what our position is in the world, that we're God's children, and we should act accordingly to being what we think God's children 
should act like, especially when it comes to dealing with interpersonal conflict. We're saints. We have wisdom. We have judgment. As Keith rightly said this morning, we have the Holy Spirit within us that we should be able to judge. And the other, the eternal part of that perspective is the things we deal with are trivial compared to eternity. You know, I know, I know the things we think with that we think they're all important. They're going to last, if you're lucky, about 93 years. And then it's going to be over. And that thing that was so important for you to fight about today and break relationships over the day in eternity, it will not matter one little bit. And so we have to have that positional eternal mindset. The second mindset that we need to have is a representative mindset. Again, this idea that the world is watching, that this is a big idea. So in such cases, why do you lay them, this is verse 4, why do you lay them before those who have standing, no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. In verse 7 it says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already your defeat. And so you're already defeated because you're not being able to get along with each other. And you compound it by displaying it to the world. And we must have this idea that we represent Christ. The Bible calls us God's ambassadors to the world. And so we have to understand how we behave. The world is watching. And they're wanting to find a reason to have a cause against us, but not really against us, a cause against Christ. And when we don't behave properly with one another, all we're giving them is ammunition to reject Christ. And that shouldn't fall on us. We should be careful about that. Because of all things, we should never want to hurt the cause of Christ. And the third mindset is a sacrificial mindset. It closes, it, it closes why not, verse seven, or the latter part of verse 7 and verse 8, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. It's this idea of, of realizing what's really important, that the cause of Christ is more important than any personal gain I have. And, and I'll, okay, I'll take the loss. Okay, I'll deny myself. Okay, I will sacrifice, which are all calls of the disciple, right? I will, should I say it, surrender my rights. You know, I have the right to, I have the right to. But Jesus says, and Jesus himself gave up his own rights. And are we willing to give up the rights we have? Because our cause might be right, but it's still trivial in the eyes of eternity. And are we willing to be defrauded and to lose? <laughs> be willing to lose? That's crazy, hard teachings from Jesus. But that's what Paul is telling you. It'd be better for you to lose your case than to hurt the cause of Christ. You have to do that with two thoughts, I think, in mind. One is the trust that God will repay, that God's ultimately the righteous judge. And there's a promise in Scripture. You won't give up or lose anything for Christ that you won't gain back ten times in heaven. And so when you want to lose, if you're willing to give up your rights and lose your rights and lose the case, then you have to have some faith that God really knows the truth and he will rightly judge that. But the idea of losing, <laughs> I ask myself, why would I do that? We are not trained to be losers. We're not trained to, to give up our rights, especially when they are right. <laughs> but that's what the Bible encourages us to. So let me give you a why. Why would I do this? There's three points to that. 
And I think this is probably really the most important thing. Dealing with interpersonal relationships is so very important to God. Dealing rightly with our interpersonal relationships is very, 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 I don't know how many varies I should say, important to God. I want to give you a, a definition. We talk about discipleship here a lot and what it means to be a disciple, what it is to be a follower of Christ. And I think this is a probably good, concise definition of what a disciple is or what discipleship is. Discipleship is determining what God desires and then deciding whether you'll give it to him or not. I mean, I think you can phrase every choice you will ever face as a disciple or pretty much every choice you will ever face as a disciple is, here's what God wants. Here's what I got to do to give it to him. Will I do it or not? And that's what it is. And so in this case, I want you to see how very important it is with God. And as you weigh those, because I would bet there's at least some here who are going, oh, every time I say interpersonal relationship or interpersonal issue, a picture of somebody else pops in your mind. And so today, you need to see what God wants, determine what you'll have to do to give that to him, and then decide whether you'll do it or not. Number one, it's very important to God because God desires reconciliation. In one place, it talks about our whole message. The whole message of the Christian church is the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation between man and God, but also between people and people. That, it, that, that it's both and. It's not just God, but it's people and people. And I would say this, I believe God always always wants reconciliation between disciples, between true believers, people who have really put their faith in. God always wants us to be reconciled to one another. This is very, very important to him. In Matthew chapter 5, look at this verse, 23 and 24. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. How important is reconciliation to God? It's more important than worshiping him. I think what he's actually saying is you can't worship me if you're not reconciled to your other brothers. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of blown away that God, would, that God would say, more important than giving me a sacrifice, more important than worship me, is you being right with the other parts of my creation. That's how important it is. That should spur us on in all cases to seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. And this is a principle that we have to take direct responsibility for. It is my responsibility to be reconciled with other people. It's important to God because vertical relationships, and what I mean by vertical relationship is, is relationships between humans and God, up and down, right? Our relationship with him is dependent upon our horizontal relationships. Horizontal relationships is our relationships with other people. And so we cannot say we have a relationship with God if we don't have relationships, right relationships with other people. And Jesus teaches that. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. Scripture, I, simple. Don't tell me you love me if you don't love my children. 
This is, a, this, is a, this is a fact that we all understand. Don't tell me and expect to have a good relationship with me if you hate my kids. If you're, if you're going to talk bad about my kids, me and you or our relationship ain't going to be so hot, right? It's the same way with God. Don't tell God you love him and how much you hate his children. He won't stand for it. He's like, no, you don't love me. Our relationship ain't so hot. That's vertical relationship dependent upon the horizontal relationship. The Bible says that's pretty important. And thirdly, it's important to God because our relationship, again, is evidence. Our relationships are evidence to the world. Christian relationships are to be noticed by the world as evidence of the truth of who Jesus is. It's interesting. It's interesting the things that stick in your mind sometimes. I'm amazed, like I recall things. And, and why I recall the things I recall over my life, I don't know. But I remember thinking about camp this week when I used to go to church camp. Every summer, every summer for years I used to go to church camp. And, and I, I lived in North Carolina, but my best friend lived in West Virginia. So I'd travel to West Virginia and we'd go to a church in West Virginia. And I remember a few things. But there's one thing that, that I remember one night. And the guy was talking about the Bible. And he was like, imagine yourself put on trial. And they're accusing you of being a Christian. They're accusing you of believing the Bible. And the attorney comes up and says, do you believe the Bible? Oh, yes, I believe the Bible. Have you read the Bible? No. And he's like, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? And I remember that, and it stuck with me, so I started reading my Bible. I think it had the effect he wanted it to have. I started reading the Bible, and I can now tell you that I have read a couple of times every book of the Bible, every passage, every word of the Bible. So I can at least now say, have you read the Bible? Yes, I have. Do I remember every bit? No, but I know I've read it a couple times. But the problem is, Bible reading is not evidence of your salvation. Bible reading is not evidence of your relationship with God. Bible reading is not evidence to the world about what you believe at all. But the Bible tells us what is. From, first, from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so I would ask you the same question this counselor asked me back when I was in sixth, seventh, fifth grade, I don't know. Is there enough evidence to convict us of being Christians? The evidence is our relationships and how we handle the relationships we have with one another. Are we in danger of being convicted of being a Christian? Is there enough evidence to say, yes, you love your brother so much. I saw how much you gave up. I saw how much you denied yourself. I saw how caring you were and loving you were. And especially those people who really didn't like you. But you were extra caring for them. I pronounce you guilty of being a Christian. So let me give you some action steps to take. If you're thinking about hearing this, if something's resonating within your heart, a couple of action steps. This might be the next step you take, or this might help you determine the next step you take, or maybe you need to come up with your own next step to take if you're worried at all about the response today. But that gives a couple of suggestions. One, take personal responsibility to reconcile. 
This is my job. I'm not going to sit here and wait. Here's, here's another. We as Christians are so good at playing little games with ourselves. And we'll do this. You know what? What I'm going to do today is I'm going to be willing to forgive so-and-so if they come to me. And I put myself in this position of willingness. If they'll just come to me, I am. Jason, I'm telling you, you got me. You nailed me to the ground. I want to be, I want to be like Jesus. And so I'm willing to forgive if they'll come and ask. That's not taking personal responsibility. Be the one and go and say, hey, look, I've been holding a grudge, and I just want you to forgive me. Take that kind of thing. What can I do to make amends? What can I do to make it right? And so the first thing is we have to take personal responsibility. And that's what he's even talking about in that passage. Why are you going to other people? Look in the church. Take responsibility for yourself to help, help to get things right. Seek help from others. Now, in some situations, it may be a little bit more sticky. It may be a little bit more troublesome. Some of people issues can get messy. Some of them can get complicated. Some of them can get hard. It's not just as easy as going up to somebody and say, hey, look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on your toe. I didn't mean to kick you in the shin. Will you forgive me? Sure, no problem. Okay, hug, hug, let's go on. But some of them are a whole lot more messy and complicated and hurtful than that. And so sometimes we do need help. That's why we are lucky to have an elder board full of very wise men who could help in those situations. Or maybe there's someone else that you trust, that you know is a spirit-filled believer that you believe could help. That we're responsible. We've said this over and over. We are our brother's keepers. And so sometimes we might be in the situation, the situation might reach the level, the, care, the, the caliber, where in outside eyes or outside events or outside opinions or outside advice might be helpful. I'm not saying they're all simple. And so sometimes we do need to seek help especially from our other brothers who want to see us reconciled for the same reasons we want to be reconciled, to please God. And third one, determine to love no matter what. Now, there might be situations, and reconciliation will only ever take place between born-again believers who are both willing to be reconciled to one another. And there may be cases where one party is truly willing to reconcile, but the other party is not there yet. You can always determine to love no matter what. And love is doing what's good for other people at a personal expense of your own. The Bible actually describes love for us pretty well. If you want to know what that means, what I'm talking about, how to treat other people who, who won't or don't want to be reconciled to you, even though that might be what you're willing to do, you're willing to take step one, step two, but you still can't quite get there. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And just so you know, that passage that you've heard is completely in the context of the body of Christ. The preceding verses before Paul describes what love is to the Corinthians, he said, but so God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked, that there is no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then it goes on to talk about the gifts. And it says, desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And that's when he talks about, if I do anything without love, I'm nothing. But that love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and adores all things. That is a description of Christ's church and how people are supposed to treat people inside that church. So I have one final question for you, and it's a doozy. Will God get what he wants in our relationships? That is what it is to be a disciple. Let those who have ears to hear.